Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. A Sunday school teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments with her class of five and six-year-olds. After explaining the commandment to honor thy father and thy mother, she asked, Now, is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And without missing a beat, one little boy said, Thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Now, sometimes anger is funny. More often it is terrifying, as in those events we so euphemistically call domestic violence. A familiar incident from the Bible uh, will do for this. King Saul was jealous of the success of his young lieutenant David, right after David had slain Goliath. Not only that, David and Jonathan, the king's son, had become fast friends. David knew that Saul was trying to kill him, but Jonathan was not convinced yet until one day at dinner. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 27 and following. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, they're at the king's table. So the king's table would be this large dinner. It wouldn't just be like a small family gathering. He would feed a lot of people in this situation. He said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse, that's David, come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, Well, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town. And my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me me go and see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't you know he said it exactly like that? Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Well, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. And that story repeats itself day after day after day in this country. You you just about can't open up a news page without seeing some story of domestic violence. The story of Saul and David and Jonathan is one of the many accounts of unchecked anger recorded in the Bible And as we see in the daily news, it is one of the most powerfully destructive forces in life, not only to its targets, but to the people who are actually angry, to the initiators. There's a ton of research out there to validate that. Medical research tells us that anger triggers our body's fight or flight response. So our adrenal glands, our thyroid, our pituitary glands secrete toxins which, if left unused, act like poisons within us. Our heart rate goes up, our vasosystem constricts, our gut tightens, our digestion shuts down. All of these medical, these physiological, biological things happen inside of us, 
if we don't actually fight or fly, run or get it all out physically, it's dangerous to us. It poisons us. Psychiatric clinics are full of anger victims. Psychiatrist Paul Meyer reported that 25% of patients are a mixed bag of organic and other problems. 75, so only 25% of people with psychological problems actually have a physiological cause to the problem, that it was completely rooted in a physical cause. 75% of patients have anxiety and depression. 95% of depression and the major anxiety disorders, so 95% of that 75%, are linked to conscious or unresolved anger toward either self or abusers. Wow, what a huge number. Well, science is always catching up to Scripture, so long before psychiatry was invented, the Apostle Paul addressed this deep problem in the human soul when he began his teaching on how to put on the new self. So he starts giving us this list of things that we should do and things that we should not do in order to be, quote, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So, interestingly, one of the very first things that he addresses is anger. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll just do verses 25 and 26, although it is addressed later on in the chapter. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body, and this is connected to speaking truthfully. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And all of us can say, easy for you to say, Paul, right? There are three common myths about anger that I want to try to undo today. First, all anger is bad. That's a myth. We're going to learn that anger has a God-given purpose. Second, good Christians don't get angry. That's a myth. We're going to learn that even Jesus got angry sometimes. Third, anger is hereditary. It's just my Irish blood. That's not true either. Uh, we're going to learn that anger is a choice and that once we learn where it comes from, we'll be better able, where it actually comes from, we'll be better able to understand it and channel it. So let's begin by identifying anger. Paul says in verse 25, put off falsehood and speak truthfully with one another. So the first step in dealing with anger is telling ourselves and those with whom we are in conflict the truth about it. We need to admit that we are angry. Uh, in my premarital counseling, almost every couple that comes in um, when they, you get to the spot where we're doing this assessment and we say, how, how are your conflict resolution skills? And almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody says, what conflict resolution skills? I don't have any. And I tell them, nobody has them. They have to be learned. But this is one of our problems is we don't, we don't like to admit it. We're afraid to admit it, especially newly married couples. It's so, it's so funny. I don't want to hurt her feelings. I don't want to upset him. But you need to talk about conflict. So we don't talk about it. And then what happens is we boil on the inside. Now, I need to give credit where credit is due. I had a huge problem with anger in my 20s and 30s. And some would say, who know me well, up into my 40s. And the books 
that one that I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, Don't Let the Jerks Get the Best of You by Paul Meyer, and another, The Anger Workbook by Drs. Les Carter and Frank Minnerth, were tremendously helpful. Now, these guys were not only medical doctors, they were uh, PhD psychiatrists and psychologists, and they were also had masters in theology from Dallas Seminary. So I trust these guys. And I learned an awful lot from them. So a lot of what I'm teaching you today, I learned from these fellows in their books. One of the first things that I learned to do is to tell myself the truth when I was angry, because anger has a lot of faces. Anger, we, we, we cover it up with a lot of different words. We tend to associate anger only with aggressive outbursts and violence like we just read about with Saul and Jonathan and David. But the truth is, we are often angry and we don't want to admit it to ourselves or admit it to other people. So we have other ways, we have multiple ways of covering this up. We will say, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. No, you're angry. I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm, I'm just irritable. I didn't sleep well last night, and I'm just irritable. Or I'm not angry. I'm just annoyed. These people are just annoying. Or I'm, I'm not angry. I'm really not. I'm just concerned. I'm really worried. And what we need to go, what we need to actually do is say, no, I'm really angry. I'm really ticked off about this. But a lot of times we don't know why we are. Now it's true that many things can contribute to a temporary state of frustration or irritability or annoyance or worry. But here's, here's kind of a diagnostic tool for us. When we find that we are in a constant state of frustration or a constant state of annoyance or fretting, the likelihood is that we are angry. I think it's Psalm 37 that says, Do not fret. It leads only to evil. Boy, how true is that? Because fretting is really just kissing cousins with anger. What happens is when those things are constantly in place, frustration, irritability, annoyance, fretting, the likelihood is the devil already has a foothold. So all of these can indicate a slow burn that may one day erupt into aggressive and violent behavior. Sometimes it even catches the angry person unaware and off guard. So here's the question. Is all anger bad? And what is it anyway? I mean, obviously God hardwired it into the human system, this series of emotions, or we wouldn't experience it. So what was God's intent for anger. Well, anger is the emotion of preservation. If you ever wanted to write anything down, write that down. Anger is the emotion of preservation. Minerth and Carter say, anger is the emotion of self-preservation of your worth, your needs, and your convictions. Anger is the emotion of self-preservation of worth, needs, or convictions. So just as sadness is the emotion of loss, and joy is the emotion of success or gain. So sadness, think UVA. You know, joy, success, or gain, think Duke, or whatever that little team is that beat UVA, Cinderella. 
So joy is the emotion of success. So anger is the emotion of preservation. And it's, I'm sorry, Steve, I just had to do that. <laughs> See, that's the power of the pulpit. Um, it's a, it is there to protect us and the people that we love from harm. That's what it's there for. So as such, it is neither all good or all bad. It depends on how we use it. Anger is like money. Money itself is amoral. Jesus did not say money is the root of all evil. Jesus said the love of money is the root of all evil. So anger is the same way. Paul tells us get rid of, and this is in verse 32 of Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. But he also says there in verse 25 or 26, be angry and sin not. He's actually quoting Psalm 4.4. 4. Psalm 4 says, be angry and sin not. And then it says this interesting thing. Meditate on your bed at night. It's like, there's a time and a place for anger, but you need to be thinking through this and understanding what it is. Because if you don't, it can be sinful and deadly. So, Anger is either a powerful force for good or a powerful force for evil. So let's talk about that, that preservation thing. Anger is a boundary protector. It's a boundary protector. If anger is the emotion of preservation, what is it supposed to protect? Well, it's protecting our boundaries. All of us have boundaries. Some are visible. Some are invisible. Some are conscious. And some are unconscious. It's really easy. You can see this. We have visible boundaries. We call them fences, locked doors, traffic markings. All of these are boundaries that preserve something. If someone breaches one of these, we feel the emotion of anger rising in us. If you're driving down the road in your car and you see someone coming over that's coming at you and they're coming over the double yellow line and you start to honk on your horn you think okay somebody just made a mistake and then you can see inside and you can tell they're texting they're not driving then you really get angry because it's preservation it's simply preserving life so we have visible boundaries we also have that are conscious we also have conscious invisible boundaries so I have a boundary around my car. I want somebody, I want at least a car length between me and the guy that's behind me. If I can't see their headlights in my rearview mirror, they're too close and I'm usually going to do something to either try to shake them off my tail, I'm going to speed up or tap my brakes or something or just get out of the way. I have like a three to five car length separation boundary between me when I'm on my motorcycle and people in their cars because that's just deadly. And then we also, uh, Americans in particular, have personal space boundary layers that are invisible. It's about 18 inches. Uh, Mary, you want to come up here? Just to stand up. Now, Mary and I are friends. I've known Mary since she was born. But you just tell me when you start getting uncomfortable, okay? <laughs> See? We have these invisible, and I took my breath mint this morning. So we have these invisible um, boundaries 
around our physical space. It's about 18 inches for Americans. Then we have these unconscious, invisible boundaries. So we have conscious, visible boundaries, unconscious, uh, invisible boundaries. And those are around our personal worth or self-esteem, our essential needs, basic needs, and our basic convictions. Our basic convictions. So let, we're going to talk about the hardest one first. And these are boundaries a lot of times, and unless somebody like this explains it to us, we don't know we have them. So the first one is our personal worth or self-esteem. This boundary is violated whenever we feel invalidated or rejected. Uh, example, back to the story of Saul and, and David. David has just slain Goliath. They've had this huge victory over the Philistines. This happens in 1 Samuel chapter 18. They go back and the town has this, the, 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 major, the main city has this major celebration. And they say this. Saul has slain his thousands. David his ten thousands. And they do it over and over and over again. And listen to what's going on in Saul's mind. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands. He thought that me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So what was happening inside of Saul? He was insulted. His self-esteem, which was very fragile in the first place because he wasn't walking with God and he knew it and he was carrying this load of guilt inside. But his self-esteem was violated. He was furious. His whole identity, instead of being wrapped up in his place as a servant of God for and on behalf of the people of Israel, was just wrapped up in his identity as king. So when that role was threatened, he lost his cool. Think about John the Baptist, on the other hand, for a contrasting example. John is the Billy Graham of Israel. And, you know, zero A.D. He has this national following. Everybody talks about John Billy the Baptist. And then this guy Jesus comes along and it, it talks about it in the Gospels where his disciples go to John and they say, John, this, this new guy, Jesus, he's, he's baptizing more people than you are. What's John's response? That's okay. Nobody can have anything other than what God has given him. He must increase, I must decrease. So John's whole frame of reference is completely different than Saul's. His self-esteem is not threatened by this. The washing machine in our house, our last house we lived in in Georgia, leaked. And it damaged the parquet floor that was right in front of the washing machine. It wasn't a big piece of parquet floor, maybe three by eight. It was just in, one, in a hallway that separated two other rooms that were carpeted. But the floor needed to be replaced, so um, I was bound and determined that I was going to replace it. I didn't think I could afford to do it. All of my friends who are close to me will tell you, nobody should leave me alone in a room with a tape measure and a saw and a piece of wood. It's just not going to turn out well. And so uh, I spent all day making this pre-finished hardwood tongue-and-groove stuff line up 
and go in the right direction in my hallway. But I didn't finish it because I couldn't put the thresholds on it because it had something to do with the lengths of wood, the wood with different lengths at the ends. But I was exhausted and I was done. So Krista, my wife, came home. She said, um, beautiful floor, when are you going to finish it? Boom, I hit the ceiling. Didn't you appreciate my work? I've worked on this all day. I got really, really upset because my self-esteem was wrapped up in this dumb floor. I didn't put the thresholds on it until right before we sold the house. So, <laughs> some of us have really super sensitive boundaries around our self-esteem. So how do we keep our cool when it's crossed, when that boundary is crossed? Well, there are two pieces to that puzzle. First, we have to tell ourselves the truth about how fragile we are. So don't just tell the truth to your neighbor. Tell the truth to yourself. Some of us have 18-foot razor-wired electrified fencing around our self-esteem. And it's probably because it was badly damaged early on or else because, like Saul, maybe we are carrying this enormous load of guilt. We know that we are outside of the will of God, so we are super sensitive to any kind of of criticism. And we need to start asking God, why, why am I like this? Lord, show me why I am so sensitive, why I'm so easily offended and hurt. Because the first step is taking responsibility for ourselves and realizing, you know, it's not just the things that are people saying or saying are to me or about me or whatever. It's just how super sensitive I am. And the second thing, first thing, we need to tell ourselves the truth about how fragile we really are and start figuring out where that fragility comes from. And then second, we need to tell ourselves the truth about our true worth. That's where our understanding of this book comes in to be so important. The, everything that's in all the first three chapters of Ephesians and Colossians about our identity in Christ and how much God loves us and how much He has given to us, that we are completely, totally, perfectly loved and accepted by God, not because of how cool we are, not because of how righteous we are, not because of how good we look in our new clothes or whatever, but simply because Christ died for us and imputed to us His righteousness so we stand before God completely justified, completely sanctified, completely accepted, and God is just waiting for us to take our guilt to Him about our inadequacies and our failures and say, God, I've got all this stuff. And He says, I know. I sent my son to die for that. It's okay. It's forgiven. You are accepted completely in my beloved son. In fact, I have imputed His righteousness to you. So it's more than just you're kind of at neutral ground. You have Christ's righteousness. So honey, please don't worry about your self-esteem. You've got all that you need. You are completely and totally loved by God. So there's what Christ has done for us 
you know, we can't take any criticism at all when we are completely self-condemned. And it's not until we can receive the love and acceptance and the forgiveness of God that we can let that self-condemnation go. You know, a self-condemned person is a really miserable person. And you're going to be really, really sensitive to slights. But God has made us righteous in Christ. So not only that, but also we are his highest creation. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Well, here's what he is. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And that has to be one of the most incredibly validating things that anyone has ever written about the human race. We are the pinnacle of creation. The problem is that we have let the world's definition of humanity, that we are just accidents in the universe, and the greatest threat to the survival of the planet, rob us of that innate dignity, and we need to stop. So it really does come down. Are you going to believe what you feel, what the world tells you about yourself, are you going to believe what God tells you about yourself? That's really it. But it's not easy to do. That's why it's so important to read this book. Actually read it. And talk to God as you read it. And listen to what He has to say to you as you read it. And have a conversation with Him about what you're seeing in, those thing, in, this, in these pages as you read it. And just listen to what He says. And then believe it believe it because this is truth and what you're feeling about yourself when you're miserable that's not truth and what you're feeling about yourself when the world is telling you that you are a piece of trash that's not truth because you're crowned with glory and honor so that's the boundary around our our self-esteem and our personal worth quickly let's cover the last two there's a boundary around our essential essential needs and a boundary around our basic convictions now essential needs that's basic human survival when life as we know it feels threatened we feel anger earlier on in this story of samuel and david and jonathan uh sam uh saul was pardon me saul and david and jonathan saul was leading a battle against the Philistines. They were having a great day. They were whooping up on the Philistines. But Saul is so arrogant and he's so proud and he's, he's just so all that about himself. He says, nobody in Israel is going to eat today until the sun goes down. We're going to get all these Philistines. Well, Jonathan, his son, didn't hear that command. So they're going through a forest. Jonathan's hungry. He sees some honey. He dips his staff in it, takes a little taste of the honey. Boy, that felt good. And all the rest of his guys turn and look at him and say, oh, no. Jonathan, Jonathan says, what? Oh, no. He says, Your father said anybody that eats today before the sun goes down is going to die. And Jonathan says, that's just stupid. 
and he manages not to be killed and really rebukes his father in the process. That's my uh, paraphrase of 1 Samuel 14. How does that apply to us? Jonathan was angry because his father Saul had put the soldiers and the nation at risk by this foolish order. They had an essential need to eat in order to do their jobs. Well, when a man loses his job or feels like his supervisor is bearing down on him, he experiences anger because his essential need to have an income is under threat. When a mom sees her children at risk, she feels anger because their physical safety is at risk. Years ago, my mom still lived in Georgia. Her house was robbed, and I'm up here in Virginia, and I'm angry because I felt like my mom's safety was at risk. The, why? The boundary around our essential needs for income, our family's safety, our parents' safety is threatened, and we feel anger about that. It's a natural, normal reaction. God wired it into us. But we have other essential needs as humans that are survival needs that are not as visible as those kinds of needs. But they still generate anger when they are threatened. The Bible recognizes these needs in its one another commands. You know, love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, confess to one another, honor one another. As human beings, we have needs for these things. They're invisible needs. We need companionship. But then our best friend's job moves her out of town, and we get angry about that. Why does that have to happen? We need privacy, but we can't keep the kids out of the bedroom. You know, the lock. It's like we get angry. Get out of my bedroom. We need order and harmony, but we cannot control other people's choices which brings about disorder and disharmony in our home and our work lives or whatever. And when that boundary is crossed, we feel anger. Well, the Bible teaches us two things about that essential need, and it's visible and invisible. First, God cares deeply for us. That's truth. We have to remember that because our feelings can be very powerful and we can forget. Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So we have to put our faith and our confidence in that. So God actually cares for us, but bad stuff is still going to happen. Everybody loves Solomon's advice in Proverbs, Commit your way to the Lord and He will direct your paths. And it sounds like clear sailing to serial success. But we tend to forget his warning in Ecclesiastes, time and chance happen to them all. And other stuff, the cosmic, in other words, the, the cosmic Murphy's Law is always in effect. It's not lifted until Christ returns. So his eye is really on the sparrow, but he does not suspend the effects of the fall for anyone until Christ returns. So... You will experience failure. You will be frustrated, but there is an upside. Failure and frustration teach us more and faster than success. And one of the things that they do is they teach us prudence and humility. So we set, like we learn in our financial classes, very first thing we do after we start paying off debt is we set aside a nest egg. Why? Because the refrigerator is going to die. Because the car is going to break down. Because somebody is going to get sick. 
And God in His Word tells us, prepare for those kinds of things. He's not left us clueless about this. But what happens is sometimes we don't have any control over that stuff, and especially other people's failures, we think sometimes we need to control the behavior or the performance of others around us in order for us to be happy and not angry. And that's just not true. We don't have any control over what, how others are going to behave. For example, Jesus starts talking about his death to his disciples. Peter gets up in his face. Not going to happen to you, Lord. What does, Peter say? what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me. Satan. Gee, that was really tender and kind. No, Jesus is being confrontational. Peter, you don't, you don't understand what's going on here. God is in charge. You're not. God has a plan that you don't see and you don't understand. Stop trying to control me, Peter. You can't. I want to urge you that if you feel compelled to control other people around you, it's because you're insecure and you don't believe that God is there and wanting to meet your essential needs if you will use the wisdom that He gives you in this book. So controlling everything to protect our essential needs is not an option. Trusting God and living with humility and prudence is. It's how we navigate that channel around that basic need. Third one, quickly, basic convictions. This is our built-in concern for righteousness in all things. We have a felt need to stand up for what we believe and defend right from wrong. Everybody has basic convictions, including Jesus. Second chapter of John, verses 12 through 19, Jesus goes in the temple. He sees all these people trading uh, doves and sheep and goats and making money on loaning money, on changing money. And he, he says, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? Gee, that was really non-confrontational, wasn't it? No, he's angry. And it's a basic conviction that this place was put there so that people could worship God and pray, and you've turned it into the mall of Jerusalem. Get this stuff out of here. Another one, which is one of my favorites, because people that misapply the teaching about anger don't talk about this but in mark chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 we won't go there jesus is in the he's in the um, synagogue there's a man there with a withered hand they've got him there on purpose because the pharisees and the guys leading the synagogue the legalist they've got him there on purpose because they want to see if jesus is going to heal this man's hand on the sabbath and the scriptures say jesus looked around at them with anger. Same Greek word that Paul uses here in Ephesians verses in Ephesians 4:26. He looked at them with anger at their hardness of heart. And then he had the guy, then he did this other confrontational thing. He has the guy stand up in the middle of the synagogue and says, "Stretch out your hand." And just deals with it. And he's kind of, it's like he's saying to these guys, deal with it, guys. So there's two ways to address the crossing. The anger is appropriate in that instance. Two ways to address the crossing of these basic convictions. First, if you've, you know, some of us have basic convictions that are a little over the top. 
So we've got to make sure they're reasonable. We may feel anger when we realize others are insensitive to our basic convictions, but we need to be sure that our convictions are reasonable and biblical. I have a basic conviction that grits are to be eaten with butter and salt. But I'm not going to confront you if you choose to ruin them with sugar, okay? That's just reasonable. Second, don't avoid healthy confrontation. You can learn how to do confrontation in a healthy way. That is the lesson of Jesus in the temple. That's the lesson of Jesus rebuking Peter. That's the lesson of Paul rebuking Peter in Galatians when Peter had sort of backslidden into legalism and bigotry. When a major principle is at stake and we stifle confrontation, what we are really doing is poisoning ourselves with those fight-or-flight toxins and creating a slow burn that is eventually going to erupt into something really ugly. And worse than that, we are leaving an essential matter of justice and righteousness unaddressed because we don't know how to do confrontation. So, all anger is not bad. God gave it to us for a purpose. It's the emotion of preservation. But it does have to be channeled. Second, good Christians do get angry for the right reasons. Third, anger isn't hereditary, but it is a choice we make when a boundary is crossed. I can tell you from experience that being in a slow burn is a terrible way to live. And so maybe the Holy Spirit has put His finger on a sore spot in your heart this morning. And maybe He has shown you one of those places where you're an angry person and it's just eating away at your insides like a cancer. And the devil does have maybe a toehold maybe even a foothold. Let me suggest that you do two things, and we'll just spend some time in prayer right now doing this. First, admit that you are angry. Just tell the Lord, Lord, I am really angry about X. You name it. Second, ask the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus called the Counselor, to begin showing you which one or several of those boundaries got crossed? And by whom? And when and where? And whether they're uh, overly sensitive boundaries that need to be put away or whether they're essential needs or basic convictions that need to be addressed. And then just say, start asking him, Lord, okay, help me to understand this. Help me to lay it before you and then help me to detach from it so that I can begin to think about it biblically. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we come to you um, who love us more than any father loved a son, more than any mother cherished a nursing baby. And we ask that you would begin to show us 
exactly when we are angry. Help us to acknowledge it, tell the truth about it, and take responsibility for it. We ask that you, Spirit, Counselor, would give us insight into which boundaries have been crossed and whether they are basic convictions, essential needs, or self-esteem, and whether or not the, the fences are just too high in those places. Lastly, help us to um, release those things to you, trust you, walk in the power that you've given us in Christ, and to begin to understand how to unravel uh, the ones, the boundaries that are in the wrong places. We ask this because you know, we know that you care for us. that you will show us step by step. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.